hope I hope that isn't true. That there isn't much room for nuance. I mean, I, I take a principles-based approach to most of the decisions um, or options in front of me. You know, is it the right thing to do? Is it how I would want to be treated? Is it consistent with values of you know respect and you know acceptance and welcoming and, and, and tolerance? You know, is it fair? Is it sustainable? And I see that in in the discussions we have. As a family, you know, with the children, they're, 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 the, world, the world they're finding themselves in is very different to the one that we were in at, at their age. Um, you know, a lot more options, uh, less boundaries, the coexistence of multiple states and perspectives. Um, and, uh, and I think that's a really healthy thing. Hello, my name is Matthew Sortino and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Xavier Zarr. Xavier is one of those people that makes you wonder where all of your time goes. Whether volunteering, staying active, getting involved in the lives of his five children or leading organisations, Xavier is one busy man. A self-proclaimed yes man and sought after by many organisations, Xavier has had to make some important decisions, both personally and professionally, across the journey. With his principles and his values as his guide, Xavier is dedicated to making an impact on everything he does. Xavier is currently interim CEO for the Breakthrough Victoria Fund, a $2 billion Victorian government initiative that aims to drive investment in research, innovation and growth in key industry sectors. Prior to this, Xavier was CEO of Federation Square, which he had to manage during COVID. He has also worked in a number of executive and leadership roles in the Victorian and Commonwealth Public Service. Xavier is a biomedical scientist and before joining the public service was a research fellow at the University of Melbourne and was even a founding member of Proteomics, a biotechnology startup focused on developing new biotherapeutics. Xavier completed his PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology in 1994 and then his MBA in 2000. On top of this, Xavier is a cyclist, scout leader and has volunteered in a range of other capacities including spending 20 years on the St John's Parish Fundraising Committee. He has done all of this while being a loving husband and a dedicated father of five children, including triplets. Lucky for me, Xavier is a yes man and agreed to spend an hour with me on a Sunday morning. I really enjoyed our conversation and personally got a lot out of it. During the podcast, we discuss Xavier's job history, including his current role as interim CEO at Breakthrough Victoria, being a father of five and the day he and his wife, Shauna, found out that they were having triplets, prioritising in the face of a changing family life, volunteering is the best form of PD one can do, thanksgiving ministry and service, being an active advocate for inclusion in the face of a changing world, the principles Xavier holds when making decisions, Federation Square COVID and leadership, why Xavier is an optimist, and a moment of clarity. If you want to follow Xavier's work, you can find him on LinkedIn. He has also featured recently on the Personality Portrait Podcast with psychologist Franco Greco. Have a listen to find out more about Xavier's background and a deep dive into his personality. Thank you for listening to Moments of Clarity. Sorry about the long break. I intend to get back on track with fortnightly episodes from here on in. And now, without further delay, I bring you Dr. Xavier Zarr. Xavier, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Uh, thank you, Matt. Pleasure to be here. It's brilliant to see you again. Um, the way we know each other is that I was actually a teacher at the school that your children went to a long time ago. We were reflecting on that. What a what a time. Uh, it, it was a great time. And um, it's interesting, so long ago, I'm, I'm trying to remember, was it four of our children or five, all five that you taught at one stage or other? I was either, I didn't teach all five, but I was around with all five in the year level that I was teaching. So they were next door or, you know, among the cohort on a camp, you know, coaching the footy team, whatever it might have been. So, yeah, had um, interactions with all five of your your kids. I think they had one year where they were all there together in primary, which was kind of fun. And, uh, you know, we were just talking before we started about how the time has flown. So, I don't think I've seen you, Matt, since grade six, which would have been around graduation for the triplets. So that's uh, going back now because this is their 12th and final year of compulsory education of uh, secondary school. So, you know, six years just comes and goes uh, pretty quickly. It's amazing. I, I couldn't believe it when you said it, but it has been. It's been six years. Wonderful kids. I was going to start with a bit about your job in history, and I think I might. I will go back to the kids a bit later, I was tempted to jump straight there and, and family, but people don't know you that are listening. So let's jump into a bit about your background. Who are you, Xavier, and what have you been up to recently? Yeah, well, um, my name is Xavier Zarr. 
uh, and uh, I'm the interim CEO of Breakthrough Victoria, which is a, uh, a state, a Victorian government-owned company that uh, is all of three weeks old. So it's been in existence for three weeks and its, its mission is to invest in and fund and therefore grow Victoria's innovative industries and R&D uh, and research capabilities. So that's my, my current gig and it's, um, it's very interesting because, you know, it really is for me as both a public servant and as a, as a, as a postdoctoral scientist, as a, as a biochemist by training, the, the point of convergence of what's really been my entire working life, but in particular, um, I must be coming up to about 17 or 18 years in the Victorian public service. Um, so those two threads have come together, science, technology, uh, investment and um, uh, public sector leadership. Was that something that you planned on one day getting to, to, to join your professional skills and, and knowledge as a leader and as someone that works within government and the public service and the community, and then linking that with, I guess, your academic love in, in you know, that pharmaceutical sciences area, biochem? Did you, did you want that to converge? Because I noticed that, you know, when you first started working, it was in that field, and then you sort of were swept away into every other facet that you can think of from, you know, leading Federation Square in Melbourne all the way to, you know, bushfire recovery and and solar panels. Or you've done everything. So how did it, you know, manifest? Was that something that you were working on or, or did it happen naturally? Uh, well, a little bit of both. A lot of it's accidental. And, uh, you know, so I, I started, as you indicated, I started my life as a, uh, as a scientist. I went, I finished year 12, I was a STEM guy and I followed that STEM passion into the sciences at Monash University, did my bachelor's and uh, was attracted to do my honours for, for several reasons. Uh, one was, um, you know, the 90s weren't a great time. Uh, to hit the job market, so it's great to hang about a bit longer. And also, it was it was it was a, it was something I really enjoyed. I enjoyed discovery research. I specialised in biochemistry. Uh, that was my discipline, in particular protein chemistry. And I, I applied that to the areas of immunology, which was very topical at the time because, um, for instance, um, you know HIV was still a disease we were seeking to understand. But it also had applications to cancer and inflammatory disorders, and so I, I followed that as a researcher and an academic, uh, and a and a university you know teacher, if you like, um, you know, for some years, you know, publishing, uh, building a group, you know, building um, a corpus of you know funding, private and philanthropic, as well as uh, government, and just you know spending about eight years as a as a research uh, academic, uh, trying to make my way, make my name, and. You know, I found that that activity lent itself increasingly to industrial applications. Um, you know, I ended up at the at the beginnings of a field called proteomics, which was at its heart um, an industrial approach to drug target discovery. And I followed that path, you know, patenting and, and publishing, and that took me into biotech. So I, after eight years in in you know the the academic environment of um, you know Monash and then Melbourne Uni and a few side bars you know overseas but but mostly there you know I jumped into that biotech space that private biotech space and and I thought I would I would develop there uh you know in advance I'd done my MBA you know so I'd always seen myself moving into the the commercial side of the the sciences and discovery and I was quite happy there and then uh for a range of personal reasons I I happened across and then took the opportunity to go into the public service. But again, I followed the, the, the scientific path because I was recruited as, uh, uh, as, a, as a general manager for technology and innovation. So the state had a, a massive agenda back then in uh, the early 2000s around the science, technology and innovation path. And it was investing heavily and it was looking for people like me who could advise it and, and help them. And, and so that was my entry into the public service. I like to delve into those moments, a little sliding doors moments, because you were passionate about getting into the biotech industry, the probably the, um, well, with the business degree, growing a business and sort of having a for-profit life in a way. H how did that shift? You mentioned some personal reasons. You don't have to go into them, but, you know, what was it that made you shift and, and change your mind? Yeah, um, I'm happy to go into the personal reasons because um, you're, you're very familiar with them. 
I, my wife and I, uh, we were, we had a, a beautiful baby boy, our first child, and uh, that occurred as I was sort of about uh, before, while I was in academia, but, you know, thinking about doing my MBA and thinking about moving into the commercial sphere. And uh, and then I moved into, uh, I was in fact employee number one in a, in a biotech startup called Cryptome, which, uh, you know, kicked along for a while, did all right, we're raising money, you know, we're doing good work, we were, we were attracting partners, creating IP. Um, and then we found ourselves expecting triplets. So, you know, it's one thing to be a couple with one child and and my salary was entirely dependent on the vagaries of the capital markets, you know, raising capital, burning cash, turning that into, into value and then using that to, to attract more money to build the company. So that's that's fine when uh, when it's just the three of you or even the two of you or the one of you. But when we were looking at, you know, suddenly overnight we went from having one baby to, to having four in nappies um, at two and under. And, you know, you look down the barrel and you think, well, um, I think I'll be the sole breadwinner for a while now. So I had to think about two things. Um, how can I sort of secure, you know, if you like, my ability to, to work and rely on, on a salary, you know, as well as do something interesting. Um, and so they converged at that time. So then I, I started looking at opportunities um, and government emerged and, and, you know, I applied. I applied a few times, you know, like I didn't get in the first time, I didn't get in the, the second time. It, it took um, three goes before the, the the senior exec in the relevant department could see that I had something uh, to offer and that I was ready for it. So I made that move and I started, you know, we had, we had our triplets uh, just after Easter of 2003 on, on the Tuesday after Easter, Sunday, and I started my new job on the Monday following that. So no paternity leave, you know, no no parental leave. It was just like uh, leaving the, the, the chaos of, of nappies and feeding and and putting on a suit and tie and heading to work. It's incredible. I've, I, I've someone that's just um, my lovely partner, Lauren, has just had a – we've had a baby girl and she's four months tomorrow, but I can just – I've got. I've been so lucky to spend the Christmas holidays with her and, and with the family, and then another set of holidays as a teacher. And then I took my paternity leave a, a couple of weeks. So I've had a good what eight weeks at home, nine weeks at home in different stages and capacities. And I just can't imagine doing it any other way. And that's with one, <laughs> let alone with um, with four, I guess. But three newies. Uh, so was that? Just a complete. What was your feeling when you found out triplets were 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 there? Was it was a shock? It, it was shock. It was shock. I um, Shauna was uh, so. Yeah, I'll, I'll paint you the day. You know, we're um, we're we're expecting. We know we're expecting. Uh, we're excited, and um, we're getting ready for a scan. Um, and the the first scan told us we're having twins, which was like you know that that was fine. That was that was easy. It was an early scan. And, uh, you know, we were prepared for that. You know, we, we saw the numbers were, were, were reasonable. Um, and, you know, our measure, Shauna and I thought, you know, we can fit all three kids into a Falcon. So it'll be no problems, not, not too many changes to our life. Um, proceeded then to, you know, to make start making plans to extend the house so that we had enough bedrooms for three kids. And then it was about, oh, I don't know, four weeks later, on a, uh, Shauna came by, picked me up at work because I was working, um, you know, and uh, picked me up. She was still home then with uh, with uh, with our eldest. Picked me up and we drove across to Carlton um, for the scan. We're sitting there and um, you know have it. You're in the darkened room. You've got the, the 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 gel on the belly. You've got the the you know it looks like the pizza roller, and um, you're looking at the screen and you know nothing, nothing's very clear to us. You know, but the, the operator obviously knows what's going on. And um, it was interesting. We both laugh about this now. She she actually she said oh. I think, and she turns to me, not to Shauna, right? like not the woman carrying the baby. She turns to me and says, "I think, I think you're having triplets." And um, you know, you, that's quite a shocking moment. You know, you sort of go, "Really?" Like, you know, wow. And Shauna and I look at each other, and you know, we take a deep breath. And I have to admit, the, probably the second thought after just registering that bit of news, my first thought was actually, "I think I need a bigger car." <laughs> which friends of mine have told me since is sort of a classic way in which you 
start to make progress on some of the things that you can do mm. early, you know, like of oh, that I can fix, right? Because yep. that's just a chunk of money, you know, in a visit to a car yard. That I can fix. All the other stuff I can't, you know, I'm going to yep. have to wait for that, but that I can fix. So we, um, you know, it was a shock. And um, on the day I was giving um, like a colloquia, like a, a seminar to, to academics, you know, peers and colleagues and, and others at Melbourne University at the Department of Medicine where I was working at the time. Uh, no, I wasn't working there. Sorry, sorry. I had moved to biotech, but I was a I was a fellow of the university, so I had would go back every now and then yep. and you know partake in the academic life, you know. So I was giving a talk, and I had to go back, having given been given the news to give the talk, and I was going back to a department that I'd been at for you know, many years and had many friends, and my my best mate was there. He was um, you know he was a re, he was a postdoc fellow, and he just said to me, "You're looking a bit pale. You okay?" And I said. Um, we're having triplets, you know, and he uh, he just, you know, just goes, whoa, I didn't know how to process that because they, <laughs> they hadn't had one yet, you know, <laughs> he and his wife. So that was um, that was the shock. I gave the talk. I don't know what I said. And then um, I actually made my way back to where I was working. So that was in Parkville, right, University of Melbourne, but the biotech firm that we were establishing, that was based at Paran at the Baker, you know, at the, um, you know, where the, the Alfred Hospital is, yep. little biotech precinct at the time and uh you know I would uh, I walk in and again uh, my boss said had the seminar go and uh and a scan you know just just and he said and I told him and he his wife is a nurse and she's quite familiar with multiple births and so on and he said uh oh that's tough you know <laughs> didn't say congratulations he said oh that's tough but you know we, we picked up from there you know you yeah. what you start doing is you start engaging with the tasks that are in front of you you know you just think okay well if it's that number and it's this timing and it's these needs then you know there's a there's a let's map out the jobs we need to do you know the house has got to be bigger the car's got to be bigger we've got to get our affairs in order I need to think about uh you know it took it only took a few days of Sean and I talking about well are you really able to can you keep going to the US um you know every every second or third month to you know, talk to investors and present and rustle interest and you know generally work on behalf of the company. You know, is this going to be a sustainable um, arrangement? Am I? I can't. I clearly, in her views, I can't go back to work now for a time because this will be quite intense. Um, and so you know, you just adjust to the changed circumstances, and the changed circumstances require to change the approach. And 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 that for me meant. <laughs> um, opening up the age job section and looking for other things to do that could use my skills but didn't require me to leave the state of Victoria. It's unbelievable. What a what a moment that would have been um, or a, a group of moments that probably haven't ended to this day. You've gone from one to four. Shauna and yourself have had to radically change mindsets and everything. You've, you've got the car. You've thought about the house. But most people might go into their shell and say, look, I'm just going to get a salary job that I know that's going to handle it. I get some time. I felt like I didn't have much time as it was, and now I'm going to have even less. And people actually take a step back. But looking through your your job history, looking through your volunteer work, looking through everything that you've done, it seems that you actually took on maybe more than ever. How did you did you find see it like that? Were you able? How did you find the balance between? your personal passions, your work passions and growing in a career of, that ended up being in leadership and in many fields to raising kids. And I know you're a wonderful and dedicated father as well. And, and you've actually volunteered within their, you know, kindergarten and school. You've done all of that. This podcast is about people having values and saying, how do I make an impact on the life I want to lead and many people that I talk to, including myself, wonder, oh, I don't have the time for that or I don't have the motivation or whatever it might be. Can you take us through a little bit of your beginnings? Was that something that a mindset shifted and you go, oh, I can do all of this? Or did it take time and little chunks and steps to get to that point? Yeah. Um, oh, there's no great strategy here and there's no there's no great master plan. There's no, you know, five seven or 10 year plan. Um, it's none of that. It's, um, you know, I tend to be, you know, rightly or wrongly, I'm a, I tend to take a sort of a principles based um, approach to, to decision making, you know, so, you know, what is it you, you want to do at a particular time, you know, what's important to you, what's important 
what 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 are your values you know what's and, and then you you just make that decision accordingly and uh, and so that's pr- so I just it, think of it as boiling a frog you know really the uh, it just it gets hotter you don't notice it you just keep working but it's not as if you know, I think I think we underestimate our capacity. So, for instance, you know, when 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 it was, and for many years, my wife and I, Shauna and I, were just on our own. But we were married quite a few years before we had our first. And you know, when you think about it, apart from having fun and finishing your studies and and and, and progressing your your career, you um, you know, it, it it's pretty it's pretty manageable. Right, but you don't feel it. You feel it's busy. You feel that there's all these competitive, competing demands. You know, family, and friends, and sport, and work, and house, and each other. And you know, you always feel as if there's never enough time. And if someone were to say to you, "Are you busy?" You'd say, "Yeah, I'm really busy." But you reflect back, and you go, "Well, now you feel busy because you're doing what you do." But it's not that you you should be doing more. It's just that it, it doesn't necessarily occur to you. But your circumstances change. So when you have your children, those other things don't become any less important. They're just part of the portfolio, part of the balance. So you you try and progress them as, as best you can. I think that you build your capacity to do more as you seek to do more or you choose to do more. Or if you take my approach, which is I, I hate, it's really hard for me to say no. I very, very seldom say no. So somehow, you know, you, know, you say yes often enough and you, you, you just try and fit it in. By and large, it works. Like, by and large, it works, and the important stuff gets done, and the trivial stuff doesn't get done. So, it, yeah, there's no great plan. So, you know, what does that mean specifically? What that means is, you know, when when Dom came along, you know, I wanted to be home a bit more, and I did what I could to make that work, but it didn't slow down, um, you know, the career and the extracurricular activities. I continued to, you know, I used to race bicycles. Um, you know, I did that right through until the triplets were born. You know, with before Dom, with Dom. Um, you know, there was time for that. There was time for the MBA. There was time for work. There was time for going overseas. There was time for, you know, renovating the house. There was time for each other and family. Um, there was time for my, you know, my principal voluntary activity down at down at St. John's at the time was around um, fundraising, you know, Thanksgiving. That was it. So I sat on that committee for, you know, when I think about it, um, you know, from my mid to late 20s, you know, until right, you know, for 20 years, you know, sat on that and chaired it. And, you know, I, I didn't think of it as another burden. It was just something I was asked to do, said yes, and we fit it in. You know, you, you've mentioned, you've alluded to, you know, volunteering. I think most of the stuff I've done outside of, you know, fundraising and, and, and St. John's and so on, most of it has always related to an interest or, or children or both. When the kids were at school, or kinder, and there was a job to be done, I, was, I, I, I could never say no. Funny, people see you do things in other fields and they just assume that, you know, they are, they, therefore they identify you to work in, in their area as well. And so it, it tends to snowball. But, you know, um, I learned a lot as a volunteer. I learned a lot about, I learned a lot about leadership as a, being on the committee for the Coburg Cycling Club. You know, as you know, as as a, as as a secretary, I learned a lot as a young man about um, you know governance and um, you know finance and management and strategic planning and interpersonal relationships and organising and coordinating. I learned a lot, uh, which I took. Um, I learned a lot. Of, you know, my public speaking benefited from getting up and talking to parishioners about. Um, the importance of, of Thanksgiving and, um, you know, and how their contributions made it possible for the community to invest in uh, the things that were important to it and the people that were important to it and, you know, have outreach and, and, and welfare support and, you know, pastoral care and ministry and these things. I, I learned a lot from that. I learned, I got more out of that in terms of PD than I, I felt I gave. <laughs> um you know, I, I enjoyed my time as a as a scout leader. Again, my, the children dragged me into that. I mean, they literally dragged me into it. They went down the street, you know, two blocks from here, to the local scout hall because their friends were there, and that dragged me. And then that led to me being involved, and led me to me being a leader. And to and and I you know, I I learned a great deal through the training. You know the sort of the pedagogy and the curriculum and the, you know the things. And you're a teacher, so you know, um, you know, frames in your mind. You know what 
mentorship and leadership and coaching is like. And I learned an enormous amount through that process that I applied in my, you know, executive leadership. In fact, I've done an MBA, you know, I've done uh, the Australian School of and New, Australian New Zealand School of Government Fellowship Program. I've done senior executive development programs in the public service. But if I was to point to one thing that may that I think makes me a better, you know, coach and mentor and developer of talent among the people I work with in the public service is actually my scouting leadership because youth are nascent adults and they can't be, you know, they, they, they learn by doing and they learn through confidence and they learn through development and you get them for four or five years and you take them on a journey. And um, uh, I've, I've, so I actually felt that all those experiences all contributed to what I, to the person I am. I got more out of that volunteering than, um, than um, I put in, let me tell you. That's incredible because often people do see it as a, as a chore to begin with. Oh, I'm going to volunteer. Yeah, it might make me feel good, but really it's taking time. But as you say, it's it's, it's one of the greatest things you can do and, and that's a, a good lesson for many people because whenever I volunteered, I felt great and not only felt great, learnt a lot, met new people and, yeah, one of those valuable moments. You did talk within that, you know, you went from cycling to schools to scouts and, and it was all about leadership, but... With that work with the parish, you mentioned being involved with that before kids. So that was something that was separate. How big of a part has, I guess, that Thanksgiving religion, spirituality side of things played in your life? Was that something you grew up with as a, as a child, you know, with the Catholic life growing up? And, and how has that helped you in, in your life? Yeah, this is really sort of vexed space. It's, a, it's really complex. So, um, you know, I grew up a Catholic. My middle name is Francis, so Xavier Francis. Um, so, you know, there's no hiding that. But um, but my parents weren't particularly observant. And and so my my entree, you know, my involvement really as a, as a child was through the time I spent with my 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 father's mother, my nonna. And and you know, she she took the responsibility of taking me through the, you know, the sacraments and the developments and the milestones. Um, but even then, and I spent a lot of time with my nonna, uh, a lot of time. Um, you know, I, I stayed with her before and after school and, um, you know, I'd spend many weekends when my parents were, were out doing things, you know, like she was my babysitter, if you like, and um, and that, that continued right through until I got married. Um, which was at a young age, I might add, but right through in that her home, her she was a base for me, close to where I worked whilst I studied. Um, I spent many, you know, you know, would spend a night or two a week at her house because it would be convenient. Um, and um, so, you know, very much like a second, like a second mother. Um, so that was that was the journey. But you know, not it's not that I grew up in a in a household that was um, you know week in week out observant. It's more cultural, you know, than than, than, than religious. Um, and my, but I carried that through, and I'm, I'm married, and it was a, it was part of our shared values, Jonah and I, to to be involved locally. You know, when we first married, where we were living in um, around East St Kilda, and then uh, and then moving to Heidelberg, it was natural that um, you know St John's would be where we go because it's in our street, and you know that was from the age of. Uh, when was it? Would have been twenty six when we moved to Heidelberg, twenty seven uh, as a couple, and and so very early on, um, one of the sort of elder statesmen. I won't mention his name, but a, a fantastic gentleman, and uh, he'd run the the finances and the and the Thanksgiving campaigns for many years at St John's. Uh, approached me to be on the committee and. I was happy happy to do that, and then it only took a couple of years for that to become a, a chair position, and and uh, and that continued. When I look back, it was twenty years uh, of involvement before I, you know, I, I stepped back uh, for you know for a range of reasons. But you know, for me, you know, that's about where can I contribute and what's important, and and the, you know the, the the ability of the of the parish to be able to support its community and um, and provide pastoral care, but also. Um, you know, outreach and 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 welfare support ministry to to the sick. It needs resources. You know, it needs money to be able to do that. And I, I was happy to play the small role I could play. You know, to to help them in that way. But I wouldn't want to overstate it. You know, I'm not. Um, you know, I would not describe myself as um, particularly zealous. You know, um, it's a moment of vulnerability, Matt. But you know, um, I've been around the parish for a while. But you know, 
it's sort of symptomatic of the modern age that we all sort of, you know, question, you know, our, our relationship and, and not so much our faith, but, you know, how we want to observe our faith and the institutional forms we want to do that with. And, you know, like probably most of the Western world, I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I, I struggle and question, um, you know, the institutional and, and, and um, forms, um, you know, and, and, and it's how steeped it is in the past and how um, ir irredeemably backward looking it can be sometimes with, you know, own values of um, you know being progressive and and inclusive and you know I suppose that's why they call it the Catholic Church you know it's um, it, it's there for everyone but not not everyone has the same view um, and uh, so I'm still you know as a man you know as a person um, I'm still working through you know what that means and and how and how I want to engage with it. It almost says to me that it's what good comes out of it in the end of it and and who are the people there that make up that particular St John's parish and and community it's not we're not talking about the pope or what's going on somewhere you know even another church it's about the impact you can have in your community today whether that's a footy club or a a scouts you know scouts club or a or a parish and yeah i think a lot of the time our identity is mixed with what we do and it becomes our whole being where we we subscribe to this this is who i am this is what i have to be and you know you're almost you're lumped in categories in this new world you mentioned you know um being a man that's progressive but also working your way through things this modern politics of the world you don't we don't want to get too far into it but do you find it difficult for yourself and also to raise kids in this time where everyone's almost having to choose a side and it's dog eat dog and there's not much room for nuance anymore? Yeah. Um, I hope I hope that isn't true, that there isn't much room for nuance. I mean, I, I take a principles-based approach to most of the decisions um, or options in front of me, you know. Is it the right thing to do? Is it how I would want to be treated? Is it consistent with values of, you know, respect and you know, acceptance and welcoming and, and, and tolerance, you know, is it fair? Is it sustainable? And I see that in, in the discussions we have as a family, you know, with the children. They're, 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 the, the world they're finding themselves in is very different to the one that we were in at, at their age. Um, you know, a lot more options, uh, less boundaries, the coexistence of multiple states and perspectives. Um, and, uh, and I think that's a really healthy thing, you know, like that's, you know, when I think about you know, the systemic, you know, racism uh, and homophobia and, and, and intolerance that has, you know, continues to permeate, you know, the society we find ourselves in and impact on people's lives. Um, you know, our kids, and, and we are part of that, um, we, we, we're challenging and we're discussing and we're re-evaluating all our decisions, you know, and, and everything we find around ourselves through the prism of, you know, is it respectful? Is it inclusive? Is it fair? Does it have to be like this? And And it's... You know, it's super, it's hyper dynamic, you know, like it's changing. And, and the things that we thought and said and joked or thought were interesting or unusual, you know, not so long ago, we, we almost take an active approach to, you know, what's the problem here? Why wouldn't we? Why shouldn't we? How do we? I think that's, I think that's really, it's, it's, it's both. You know, it's dynamic, but I think it's exciting. And my children are, you know, like children, like 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 adults across the world, like people across the world, you know, they're questioning and they're being challenged and they're seeing the discourse. And you made a comment about, you know, the absence perhaps or the unavailability of nuance. I hope that's not true because, you know, we see the weaponization of, you know, of values and positions and we see the partisan political side, you know, we see them aggregating to be hard left or hard right, mostly hard right, to be frank. Um, and, um, you know, I take some heart for the fact that my children, they question that, you know, we question that, we we, we talk about these things, you know, they, they're rejected, they're in many ways, it's almost forcing them to, I wouldn't say to be progressive, but to be more active, you know, like to be more active in making decisions and, and taking, and taking uh, you know, taking um, stands or taking sides. So, um, you know, I love the way they're developing, you know. I don't know if it's because of the discussions we have for the, uh, at home or the perspectives they get or just the general um, discourse they have in their lives at school and, you know, in social media and um, what they read and what they hear and what they, you know, the music they buy and the, you know, I think it's, uh, I think it's a good thing. But it's a complex place, you know, like um, many of the things that 
I've been involved in, like you know, the institutions like Scouts and the Church, you know, they 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 they've got they face a real challenge, you know, to to be contemporary and to be able to move um, with what is a, a changing set of expectations in, in society. That's their challenge, and um, and I'm challenged in being involved or having been involved and wanting to shift at the same time. So we're you know the tectonic plates, um, they they they're, they're rubbing, you know, they're absolutely rubbing. Which can cause an earthquake, as as um, my little moment of clarity, uh, as the name of this podcast is, and conversations always bring them up, and it's often that we get bogged down, or at least I do, and a few people I know, but bogged down with the fact that we can't agree, or that we're we are clashing as as a society. There are clashes, you know, the US, Europe coronavirus sort of lockdown, you know, all of these different things at play, but they are a minority in many cases, a vocal, weaponized, you know, at time, violence minority, but a, a minority. And it is that maybe the fact that those values that were once there unchallenged are now finally just being eroded in a good way by progressive, modern, you know, judgments of, you know, yeah, maybe I personally don't want to do that. But why is that wrong? Why should we judge? And, and, there are people that have lived their life with a set of blinkers on ignoring that. That doesn't exist and all of a sudden it's in your face and it's that push from away from that, that that we might be seeing and it might seem scary or even like it's going backwards but in a way, you know, to get to the, to get, you know, the, the trash out of the, the gutters, you need to sort of spray it pretty violently and, and let it flow. And maybe I don't want to say that people are trash. People are entitled to all viewpoints. But I mean in, in as a metaphor that, you know, those ideas, bad ideas need to be put away, but it's going to take some time. Yeah. It's interesting. You make that point, Matt, about having to be more active to, to um, adjust the, the, the dynamic. So, for instance, from acceptance to active promotion and welcome, there's a difference, mm. right? Like there's, there's a difference, you know. It's from, uh, you know, it's uh, from uh, moving from some of my best friends are, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, to um, I, I will, I, I want to identify the actions and the, 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 you know, the approach that I take that, prevent that in, consciously or subconsciously prevent someone from feeling comfortable um, expressing themselves and living as they want um, and I'm going to actively make sure you know do my best to to know what those understand those impediments and to act on those impediments so there's a difference between standing aside and opening the door and I think that's the shift over the last little while that's the difference you know they've always been progressive in accepting people but it's we've sh- we, and, and I think we need to we need to shift to being more active but um you know like I'm not a, I'm not a young man I've been around a long time there's more more years behind me than ahead and you know I know I have to I have to be active you know in in, in being aware of the impacts my, my behaviors and perceptions might have that's what I'm trying to do like I said I'm, I'm trying to grow you know I'm trying to grow as you said, with more years behind you than ahead, constantly trying to find the new you, new you in a way, you know, constantly break ground. Do you look around you and see that that's something common with your generation or something that is un- not unique to you but that is – it would be better if there were more people doing it? I don't think it's generational. I just think different people have different approaches, you know, Um uh, we, we, I think we all go through our old man phase where we just want something to stay the same <laughs> um, because it's it's comfortable. We all do that. No, I don't think it's generational. I think uh, I meet I meet you know sprightly, dynamic, boundary pushing um, octogenarians. Uh, when I, I had this great job for a while, I was uh, uh, the CEO of uh, the Adult Community and Further Education Board, which is uh, you know does adult education. So I think learn locals, you know, and uh, community houses. And one of my jobs, it was a role I had within a broader job was to be, to, to have that, to, to have responsibility for that, uh, that board. And, um, 
I, I would meet, I'd get to meet, you know, um, uh, both educators and, and community organisers, but also their students who were, you know, looking, looking to improve themselves. You know, they're, they're working on their literacy, working on their language, looking on their work skills, but also working on their life skills, doing, um, you know, short courses in community settings, um, teaching each other. And, you know, I'd meet these, um, like I said, octogenarians who would be, you know, they were they were preparing themselves for the as if they had 30, 40, 50 more years to go. You know, they were they were undaunted. Uh, they were reinventing themselves. Um, they were becoming digital. You know, they were mastering English, uh, mastering IT. You know, um, so I don't think it's generational. I think it's attitudinal, and you know, and it's the opportunities you have. And um, should more people be like that? Yeah, for sure. I mean. You know, we're in a in a world. You know, the, the the commentators would say that we're in a you know a fundamentally changed work environment where people will have not just multiple careers but many careers, and they will need to reinvent themselves on a on a regular basis, and that will become the norm. And 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 so we want to create the environment and the circumstances and the supports and the encouragement that allow that helps people do that. You know, and um, part of its formal education, and part of its, um, you know, um, community, and some of its, um, you know, just um, being involved um, in in local groups. You know, so now I see um, I see change all the time, and I see people keen to change, and I think um, I think it's just about opportunity, really. It's just about opportunity and stimulus. You talked about a principle-based approach to decision making. What are those principles that you hold most dear? Mm. Um, you know, greater good. You know, I've I'm a I've spent a, a I've really enjoyed my role, my my policy roles in in government, and um, you know, and, and policy development is very much principles based. You know, what are you trying to achieve? You know, what's what's acceptable, and then you know, when you map it out, what's the decision you're going to make? Not something's right, or something's wrong, or something's good, or something's bad at, at the outset. So, you know, in my in my personal decision making, it's about is something worth doing? You know, is there a, a benefit in doing it? Is is am I going to grow? Is it inclusive? Is it consistent or supportive of the people around me? You know, um, it's all well and good to decide to come and do something that's at, at their cost. You know, do do I do I feel I can do a good job? You know, am I energised by it? You know, so I, those are the sort of principles I take at a, as an individual at the opportunities in front of me. So when I get a phone call that says, um, drop what you're doing, would you come and start this or would you come and build that or would you come and fix the other? Um, you know, I look at that and, you know, those principles are how I make that decision. You know, if I was maybe a little more, if I was a little smarter, I'd take the view... Um, is that going to be comfortable? Um, is that going to be more secure? You know, is that going to be more prestigious? You know, and if, if the answer to those is no, then you'll just keep doing what you're going to do. But, um, you know, I've, if you look at my, my CV, you know, I've, um, you know, I've moved around and done a lot of different things and, um, and many of them have been, you know, startups and I reckon eight times out of 10, the job, the roles I've found myself in at a given time have been because I was asked to go there. Um, in fact, very seldom has it been because I put my hand up and, and sort of applied and, you know, and, and, and got it. It's been the other way around, you know. So, um, and the other principle is openness, you know, just openness to, uh, you know, to something that's new. And I, I do love new stuff, as you can see. I love to, um, I try, yeah, I try and um, keep myself uh, entertained. <laughs> COVID. You became the CEO, interim CEO of Federation Square in 2019. And first of all, the question is, you know, what brought you to that role? What sort of aligned with what you wanted when you took it? And then how did COVID change that? Yeah, really good question. Um, well, the, the Fed Square role was fundamentally a, a leadership and transformation role. So you may recall that there was this sort of existential discussion around what is Fed Square and what's its purpose, and you know that was catalysed by the the proposal about the Apple Store, and that really forced people after close to twenty years to ask the question: well, what what's what's the space for, and what should it do, and how it should go about doing creating that public value? And um, so there was a, a need, you know, to do two things: one is to um, mid midwife, you know, that process of getting from not knowing to 
we now know and we're now ready to go. And the second is the the organisation that would deliver on that being, you know, the Fed Square uh, management entity, um, you know, the, the fine uh, men and women who, um, you know, who, who make that place the, the wonderful place that it is. So, um, you know, it, it could have been setting up a, um, um, you know, a solar panel, um, you know, rebate company. It could have been a biotech company. It could have been um, a, a regional development agency. It could have been anything, right? But in this case, it was an entity that ran Fed Square. So, you know, I came into that and even with COVID, you know, made terrific progress on, you know, um, a new plan and a new approach and uh, a new strategy and then a, a, an exciting range of capital, you know, and built fabric improvements and master planning that, you know, would set it up for the next uh, 15 years. Um, now, COVID came in and it didn't actually stop that process. It meant that one element of the business, which was, you know, the day-to-day, um, you know, running of events and, and activations uh, and the opening of the galleries and, and all that, the festivals, all that, that obviously had to take a break, in which case, um, you know, we pivoted to virtual, you know, we, we, we turned a lot of that into virtual content and started running virtual stuff, um, just like the rest of the world um, with our, with our, with our, our colleagues. Um, in uh, at the National Gallery and the Australia Centre for the Moving Image and and the Career Heritage Trust, you know, we went virtual. Um, so so that reimagining occurred. Uh, we we weathered COVID. Um, you know, we got to reopen. Um, we commenced that really exciting sort of capital, you know, that that built form renewal process. You know, all the capital projects and the buildings and so on that, um, and um, and uh, and lighting and all those things that we were doing to to make it contemporary. Um, you know, for 2020. And, um, you know, with that job done, um, you know, you get another call. <laughs> and then that call is, you know, what about? So, um, you know, I had a great time, you know. I suppose what it taught me was I, I, I wasn't... Initially, I thought, what do I know about events? What do I know about public squares? What do I know about um, heritage-listed sites? What do I know about um, arts and, and the creative industries? And the answer is not much more than anyone else. But what I do know is about people and strategy and leadership. And, you know, and, and in many ways, not being an expert means that I can, I, I need to and do spend more time and emphasis, and emphasis on developing the team and the people with that expertise within the organisation. So, in, in many ways, I actually think expert technical leadership at that top can often crowd out, you know, the growth of the people who really create the value, who really understand what's needed, who, who have the, the focus and the energy and the expertise to bring operations, you know, um, and bring infrastructure or bring activation, you know, and marketing, you know, to their fruition, you know, like to make them really sing. Um, what you want is, a, you know, I'm more in that, uh, I'm the conductor, you know, like I'm not playing an instrument, um, but I'm, you know, uh, the tempo, the tone, you know, the orchestration and and the support, you know, ultimately the servant of of those people who have, you know, that expertise. And, you know, my, my mission there, success is, are they better at what they do for me having supported them? You know, that should be a tick. Have they been given the support to excel at what they need to do? That should be a tick. Are they are they enabled to come up with even better ideas um, and work even better together to create you know the special source you know like not one plus one but you know getting to three and getting to four for that 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 equation that should be a tick and if you know if you can do that then then that's success. I've basically got out of this that you know you're about you're an optimistic person and optimism sort of drives you. We are at a point where it's hard to be an optimist sometimes with what's going on around the world. What tools do you use to ensure that you are focusing on, I guess, the things in your control to ensure that you're making a difference, you're constantly improving your life and the life of those around you, but also recognising that we're entering a point where we don't, no one's ever known the future, but it seems more unsure than ever. And having kids, I find that to be the hardest point that I wonder what is life going to look like in 10, 20, 30 years with what we've done to the world, we are, have done and are doing 
and and one of the things here is specifically is climate change and the climate crisis and environmental and biodiversity loss and this sort of thing, but also potential for war or, or disaster in other factors. But they're all out of our control in in a way. But how do you manage to constantly strive for what's next in a optimistic manner with that, you know, in the background? Yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, um, I am an optimist and, um, you know, I have a growth mindset. So, you know, I've been dissected on the couch by, you know, people um, over the years um, in formats like this and others and, uh, you know, definitely growth mindset and so it doesn't get me down. But I suppose, you know, it's easy to form the view uh, and I don't want to be Pollyanna about this. It's easier to form the view that, you know, there's been an inexorable decline over the years, you know, um, around, um, you know, equality. So, you know, particularly economic, you know, we see we see a greater uh, polarisation of wealth and control. And and we see, um, you know, as, as, as countries, as geopolitics has reformed, you know, we've seen vast parts of the world move to, you know, authoritarian or, you know, quasi-authoritarian regimes, you know, where there had been at least the discipline of the big big commonwealth. So, you know, the break the breakup of the former USSR, I'm not saying that was a great thing, you know, in, a, in that form at that time, but, you know, it's led to a whole bunch of nations, some of which are on a path to democracy and others are, you know, autocratic. And, you know, that's writ large across the world, you know, we see that. Um, we see, you know, the erosion of, of, of democratic freedoms, you know, in Hong Kong, for instance. And so, you know, a path we had thought was you know with 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 development and education and wealth and prosperity would come democratization and you know liberal economy and that in a way China would catch up with Hong Kong rather than Hong Kong mm. being pulled back into China you know like it's interesting yeah, yeah. you know a lot of the, um, and it's easy to get down about that and then of course there's the environmental issues you know um, you know there was in, in in Australia as there was globally but in Australia under the Howard into the Rudd and Gillard years you know a sort of move in a policy sense around uh, to, to develop the architecture for, you know, a, a, a less carbonised economy, you know, and one that would, um, you know, grow in a, in a consistent with our, our Kyoto um, protocols, you know, and, and then we see all that undone, you know, where, you know, the carbon pollution reduction scheme gets voted down in, um, in 2009 and, and the rest is kind of history and um, it just gets worse and harder and harder and at times it seemed hard to imagine, you know, how how as our carbon budget is being eaten up, <laughs> um, you know, and um, and as the world isn't acting fast enough and you've got this particular Commonwealth government and you've, you know, you had the Trump administration and, um, you know, that they're emblematic of, of a revision, you know, of so much of that. But, you know, today we find ourselves, um, you know, with a Biden government uh, administration in the US and they are, just because of their heft, you know, they're, they're, they're putting... Uh, carbon emissions, you know, back on the table in a big way. In a way, they're kind of dragging Australia forward, you know. We can see that policy debate. They're kind of dragging, they're dragging us forward into that. And, and you know, I think that's, and, and Europe is too. So I'm not saying that we're where we want to be. I'm not saying we're getting there fast enough. Um, it does get me down because in my various roles, I was, you know, closer or uh, involved or, you know, advising on or somehow interested in, you know, the, the, the policy detail of, of, uh, of, of environment policy. But um, it's easy to imagine or it's possible to imagine that, you know, like it's only going to get worse. But, you know, there are signs that, that, that things will get better. And, um, and so that heartens me, you know, like it does hearten me. Um, we continue to talk about the, the, the progressive reforms we need to make socially. And and so, am I an optimist? Yeah, I am an optimist. You know, like I am an optimist. I still think that um, you know, liberal democracies and the uh, you know the influence of you know, of the US and and the European you know sort of pol political systems is a great great force for good that will you know will hopefully drag us forward. Um, and in the end, you know, I think Australia is going to have to. It's got no option. To, but to have an economy and a trading system that's consistent with what they find in in Europe and the US, and they are moving, um, they are moving, and 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 so you know how long are we going to be able to hold out? So I'm an optimist because I think the big forces are moving. The real question is, will it be quickly enough, um, and will it be equitable, and and will everyone be brought along with them? And I suppose all we can do as individuals is engage with the political processes as voters. 
you know, and as uh, um, um, and as advocates, um, you know, to make sure that um, those, those those important points are being made. Those important points are being made. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm not ready to give up. You know, like it ain't all doom and gloom and um, uh, apocalyptic. It's uh, you know, it's a path. It's a journey. So just stay open to it, Matt. Just stay open. That brings us to that uh, first point that you made about not just standing aside, but also, you know, welcoming and having that openness. So, you know, being active in this role. And I'm glad that you're someone that's in the thick of it, you know, actively in all facets of life, but they're, you know, not just banging down the door, but in the room, you know, where decisions can be made and, and having that voice. So thank you for that. My my final question for today is the name of this podcast, Moments of Clarity. Um, have you had a moment of clarity lately that you'd like to share with us today? Oh, yeah. You know, I, you would have thought, given the title of the podcast, um, I would have maybe given this some more thought. The moment of clarity, the moment of clarity. You know, I, 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 for all for all the sort of not the kumbaya, but for all the sort of positivity, you know, and the, you know, um, the truth is I'm, I'm, I'm a victim of, when I say victim, you know, I, I can, I can succumb to things like, uh, the, the opinions of others, you know, in other words, how, how am I regarded? And that has several features. One is, you know, like, do they think I'm a good guy? <laughs> uh, and the other is, do people, hold me in high enough regard in terms of, you know, the title and status and things like that, you know, like that's terrible, like it's terrible. And the point of clarity is I've, uh, which I've had sort of more, you know, over the last few months really was that that can actually, you know, an obsession with with title and status is, um, you know, quite an oppressive thing. And can and can hold you back, and and I'm not immune to that. You know, I'm not immune to that. And I think, you know, I've been over the last couple of years throw, setting some of that aside and just allowing myself to be thrown into new and interesting things without worrying about that. Without worrying about that. And um, so, the, I suppose my moment of clarity is worry worry less about how other other people. How, how successful or otherwise other people perceive you to be and worry more about the impact what you're doing is likely to have um, and take a, a longer-term view, you know. what? How will it be viewed in five, ten years? Um, so, I, I don't know, we're, we're near the end of time, but there's a little example, I'll, I'll, if, you, if you can indulge me, and that is my current role, my current role, interim CEO, um, Breakthrough Victoria. 15, 16 years ago, you know, I was absolutely in the thick of the government's innovation agenda. You know, we were, whether it was building synchrotrons, redeveloping the Parkville precinct, redeveloping the, the, the Monash precincts, you know, building, essentially catapulting the, the, the Victorian innovation system through, you know, a couple of, you know, a couple of billion dollars to go from, you know, good, you know, and certainly a national leader, but to be globally significant. And... At the time, you know, like I was busy doing it, but, you know, I, I probably was a little bit more worried about, you know, am I progressing professionally? Am I, how am I viewed? Have I got the right title? You know, blah, 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 blah. I've come back into the scene after like a, almost a decade of, um, like after those investments were done, I went off and did a whole bunch of other things, as you've seen, you know, regional development, economic development, bushfires, solar panels, Fed Square, you know, busy. And, and, and without any particular planning, based on what I'd done in the past, was one of the reasons I got a phone call to say, will you come and be the interim CEO and set up this new $2 billion investment company um, to, to go the next stage? And it's given me a moment. It's, like it's forced me to actually go back and look at what happened then. Not so much what I did, but what we did collectively. What had happened, you know, how those projects and investments had matured over you know, almost a decade uh, from 2010, you know, to 2020, and how it had created the environment where now is the time, well, there was probably could have been any time, but, you know, like now really is the time at which it's, it's we are now ready to, to realise the commercial and employment benefits of, you know, the companies that will be stood up because of the innovations and the research that had been seeded and made possible, you know, from, you know, 2003 to 2010. And it makes me think I shouldn't have worried about, you know, status and title and role. I should have, uh, you know, like, what was I worried about? 
I, I should have worried. I should have only focused on what the long-term outcomes is. And I get the benefit of looking back 10 years and seeing what the benefit of all that was. And, and I think, wow, you know, like that really did work. Um, like that really is cool. And um, we wouldn't be starting up Breakthrough Victoria. We wouldn't have any reason to be here if we hadn't done all that first. Um, so the moment of clarity is um, less about the now, more about where, you know, what the impact is over, over a period of time is going to be and just invest in it, you know, um, and, and, and take solace, not solace, take, celebrate in, in this, in, you know, in the achievement rather than whether or not you were, you know, what your title was or, you know, what, um, you know, what your status was. So that's my moment, Matt. Think about the impact, not, not, not about the, in the initial recognition. Incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that, Xavier. I know it's now time. So um, thank you for your time. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've got so much out of this personally, and I know the listeners will too, and I hope you have as well. If anyone wants to reach out and find, maybe follow you in some you know, way, is there a way for them to do that? Oh, look, I'm, you know, like every other tragic, I've got a LinkedIn account and um, depending on depending on uh, the time and the interest, I try and update it with stuff. It's been a while. I probably will get busy with um, as we build uh, Breakthrough Victoria. So LinkedIn, that's the best place to see um, what I'm doing. Great. All right. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Enjoy your Sunday, Xavier. Thanks, Matt. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family, and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback, or have access to someone you believe could be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast, or on Twitter at BarneyMOC. You can also email me on Moments of Clarity Podcast at gmail.com. My name is Barney, and thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.